It's 6 p.m. and you are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Monday, March 14th. This is your KVMR Evening News. Tonight on the California Report, whatever happened to Prop 7? Up ahead, the debacle over daylight savings. Then, community health clinics are floundering. They've yet to be reimbursed for their efforts in vaccinating hundreds of thousands of low-income Californians. A look at what went wrong, coming up on the California Report. In national Native news, our local fire departments aren't the only ones using cultural burning practices to prepare for peak fire season. We'll take a look at regional news and weather before science correspondent Al Stoller speaks with Tannis Thorne and Hank Meals, authors of a new book, Nevada City Nisanon. This is the California Report. I'm Alex Hall in Fresno. California voters passed a ballot measure in 2018 to do away with changing our clocks twice a year. But almost four years later, we're still springing forward like we did yesterday. CAP Radio's Nicole Nixon explains why. Prop 7 passed in 2018 and allows California lawmakers to vote to permanently keep the state in daylight saving time. That's the spring forward change. There's just one problem. Federal law doesn't allow states to switch to year-round daylight saving. It only allows permanent standard time, which is the fallback sunset's earlier time. Arizona and Hawaii are always on standard time. Assemblymember Stephen Choi authored a bill that would have California join them. The Irvine Republican argues this century-old time change is outdated. To my understanding was to save energy, but research has shown that that was not the case. So uh, uh, I see a lot more benefits by keeping one time. Dr. Kin Yuen is a sleep specialist at UC San Francisco. She says what Choi's proposing is healthier. We perform better, we feel better, and we make less mistakes and there will be less fatalities if we just keep standard time. Choi's bill will be amended to put the decision before voters. That means just like the autumn clock change, Californians could again be voting on this issue in early November. For the California Report, I'm Nicole Nixon in Sacramento. State lawmakers are expected today to vote on legislation to counter a court order freezing UC Berkeley's fall enrollment at last year's level. The California Supreme Court earlier this month declined to remove a cap on enrollment, while a lawsuit filed by a neighborhood group over the impact of the university's growth moves forward. San Francisco Assemblymember Phil Ting says his bill would give public universities 18 months to comply with the California Environment Environmental Quality Act before the courts can impose enrollment caps. It ensures that UC Berkeley can send out those 5,000 admissions letters, giving those students the opportunity to attend the best public university in the country. He says it would take effect immediately and retroactively if approved. That means the university could move forward with plans to enroll more than 5,000 freshmen. Community health clinics have vaccinated hundreds of thousands of low-income Californians for more than a year. But due to a federal funding glitch, the clinics have been absorbing the cost. As KPCC senior health reporter Jackie Fortier found, without federal reimbursement, L.A.'s largest community health center may have to close vaccination sites in some of L.A.'s poorest areas. 
Norma Solis is sitting in an exam room, waiting to get her COVID-19 booster shot at a community clinic in South LA. I knew about it last time, but I wasn't brave enough to get it. Now I am. Her mom told her about St. John's Family Center when she needed care a few months ago after losing her job and health insurance. Now Solis is getting boosted to apply for more jobs. 99% of the jobs do require the, the vaccine, so not only is it the right thing to do, but it's also the professional thing to do if you're going to be working around other people. Medical aide Brianna Kirby Perfect. gently pulls Salise's sleeve out of the way and gives her the shot. Perfect. So 15 minutes for observation in the lobby, okay? Community health clinics like St. John's have been the backbone of coronavirus vaccination efforts in LA's low-income neighborhoods. Those residents are more likely to both contract and die from COVID. The clinics are subsidized by the federal government and provide care regardless of a person's ability to pay, says St. John's CEO Jim Manja. We treat a lot of chronic disease. We treat a lot of patients with mental illness. Uh, we treat a lot of patients experiencing homelessness, generally low-income families, communities of color. Vaccine-only clinics were used to get the shots in arms quickly. We opened 26 vaccine centers. Uh, we uh, deployed three mobiles and a, a van. And we did a, a tremendous amount of advertising, social media, text blasting, uh, to just really drive up the vaccination rates. And it worked. St. John's clinics have administered over 425,000 COVID vaccines and counting, but they haven't been paid for most of them. We've never been paid for a Medi-Cal patient getting a COVID vaccine. Medi-Cal is the joint federal state program that provides health coverage for low-income people. Usually, health clinics like St. John's get reimbursed for the cost of each Medi-Cal patient's visit. But there was no way to bill Medi-Cal for just the shots. We are owed over six and a half million dollars for administering the vaccine to Medi-Cal patients. It's estimated LA's 58 community clinics may be owed tens of millions of dollars for vaccinating low-income Angelinos. It's very disappointing. We started doing widespread community vaccination in January of 2021. It's now 2022 and we haven't received a single dollar. What's, what's going on? The system should work better. Barbara Ferrer is the director of the L.A. County Department of Public Health. We wrote letters back in September asking for this issue to get resolved. The federal and state agencies in charge of Medi-Cal had crafted a new payment structure. Ferrer asked that the plan get approved quickly so the clinics could be paid. That was six months ago. She hasn't heard back. In the, in the middle of a pandemic where you have all the disproportionality that we've seen play out in poor communities and black and brown communities, not to be able to pay these folks seems more than misguided. It seems unconscionable. On the ground, the situation is dire. More than a year of paying for medical personnel to give the shots, security, masks and gloves. Manja says St. John's is at its breaking point. Without the money, he warns, vaccine clinics will close April 1st and 200 workers will be fired. We have a whole plan come April for the pediatric vaccine in partnership with school districts around the county. And so all of that will be shut down. That includes two vaccine sites at Compton Unified and six at L.A. Unified Schools. April is also when students in kindergarten and pre-K should become eligible for the vaccine. The federal agency, meanwhile, says the application is still under review. But even if it's approved soon, dispersing the money will take time. Time that these vaccine clinics just don't have. For The California Report, I'm Jackie Fortier in Los Angeles.
Support for the California Report comes from Stanford Healthcare, alerting listeners to the critical blood shortage in the area. Now's the time to donate blood and make a difference. StanfordBloodCenter.org. The Wesley Foundation, investing in California's underserved youth, and Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. And that's the California Report for Monday, March 14th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Alex Hall. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Preparations for peak fire season are well underway. Just today, CAL FIRE performed a prescribed burn at the Nevada County Airport. In today's national native news, controlled burns, a practice indigenous people have been performing for centuries to rejuvenate habitat and reduce fuel buildup. Non-tribal governments are becoming increasingly open to implementing these native practices. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The National Congress of American Indians is hosting a Violence Against Women Act Tribal Leader Town Hall Wednesday. It follows last week's approval of the Violence Against Women Act reauthorization by Congress included in a bipartisan appropriations deal. VAWA provisions help strengthen safety in Native communities, including a pilot program to allow some Alaska Native villages to exercise tribal jurisdiction over non-Indian offenders. Akiak Chief Mike Williams Sr. says it's good for Alaska and all of Indian country. We've been working so hard uh, over the long years, especially here in Alaska, when uh, we are dealing with uh, 229 federally recognized tribes. And to empower each of the community is a goal to uh, deal with these issues that uh, are not good for our women and children, our elders in Alaska. Tribal leaders will review provisions in the law and discuss next steps for tribal nations. The federal government will fund relocation efforts for six Alaska communities threatened by erosion and flooding. Most are in the YK Delta, where erosion and flooding are pervasive problems. KYUK's Olivia Eberts reports the project will play out over time and other threatened communities can still apply for funding. The U.S. Department of Agriculture announced in early March that it will pay for Alaska communities to relocate buildings and infrastructure. The communities whose projects have already been funded include Kotlik, Aluganok, Quigilingok, Gullivan, Tuntutuliak, and Tununik. What do they all have in common? They're threatened by erosion and flooding. We are very excited. That's Brett Nelson. He's a conservation engineer for USDA. His team has worked to provide flood and erosion mitigation around rural Alaska for years. He knows the communities and their needs. Nelson says this type of federal funding is a big deal. That's because it's a first. Usually, the federal government only funds his department to relocate buildings when there's an emergency, like when a home or building is about to fall into a river. But this funding will be preventative, so communities can begin their relocation efforts before it's too late. Definitely, this is a new thing for up here. Nelson says the entire process will take about five years. It involves multiple stages of planning before they can move into the actual construction and relocation part.
But he says if any one building in those communities becomes urgently threatened, they can speed up the process for those structures. The application is still open for Alaska villages. Any village with an erosion, flooding, or permafrost issue is eligible to receive funding. In Juneau, I'm Olivia Eberts. This week, outside Chiloquin, Oregon, 20 trainees will learn the traditional role of fire in managing the landscape. KLCC's Brian Bull reports. The week-long training mirrors a similar program held outside Eugene last fall. Multiple agencies and Native American tribes from across Oregon are helping stage the burn, which will be on two acres of private land. Derek Kimball is a Klamath tribal member who participated in last year's training and is helping coordinate this week's program. Our goals are to provide forest resiliency and to diminish wildfires so the forest is healthy and it won't catch into a big mega fire. Before colonization, indigenous people did controlled burns to rejuvenate habitat and reduce fuel buildup. Kimball says he's heartened that after a century of fire suppression, non-tribal governments are becoming more open to what many native people call cultural burns, patterned after the practices of their ancestors. For National Native News, I'm Brian Bull. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. There are now booster recommendations for all three available COVID-19 vaccines in the United States, and you may choose which booster shot you receive. More info at aaip.org or cdc.gov slash coronavirus who support this show. Support by the Center for Indigenous Cancer Research at Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center, dedicated to cancer research, medicine, and cancer care for indigenous populations. A no-charge online risk assessment tool is available at roswellpark.org slash assessme. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Now let's take a look at today's regional news. Nevada County Public Health reports 37 new confirmed COVID-19 cases today. Three people are hospitalized, one in the ICU. California's mask mandate for K-12 campuses ended over the weekend, making this the first week of in-person learning without face coverings required at the state level in nearly two years. The change comes as COVID-19 numbers drop to their lowest levels in months following winter's steep Omicron surge. This reported from the Sacramento Bee. At 2.45 p.m. today, an overturned propane tanker on westbound I-80 at the Heather Glen off-ramp caused the closure of I-80 eastbound at Applegate. Shortly after 3 p.m., a hazmat unit from Roseville was dispatched to the incident. As of 4.15 p.m., I-80 is closed in both directions. Eastbound traffic is being diverted at Applegate. Westbound traffic at Weimar Cross Road. As of 4.30 p.m., Caltrans says there's no estimated time of opening. They asked drivers not to attempt to use local roads as detours around the incident due to close proximity to the hazmat team. There's a scheduled power outage for PG&E customers in the Lake Wildwood area from 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. tonight. The outage will affect roughly 3,900 residents. PG&E is doing maintenance on the substation serving the area. This reported by Ubinet. Authorities say they've linked the same person to two incidents last week that led to a shelter-in-place order for Clear Creek School. 
Nicholas Mamula of Grass Valley faces a felony charge of possession of a short-barreled shotgun and a misdemeanor charge of exhibiting a firearm in connection with the incident. The Union of Grass Valley reports the first incident happened Wednesday. Authorities responded to a call leading to a mental health clinician from the mobile crisis team to speak with those involved. Deputies seized a firearm and requested an emergency gun violence restraining order through Nevada County Superior Court. The order was denied. The second incident occurred after 7.30 a.m. Friday. Dispatchers received a call about a man locked in a bedroom on Clear Creek Place, reports state. Quote, The reporting party also advised that there was another male subject at the residence who was armed with a shotgun and allegedly not allowing the male subject to leave the bedroom, end quote, the release states. Deputies, along with the mobile crisis team, responded. They spoke with two men, and both of them were taken to the hospital for medical care. According to reports, a second firearm was found on Friday. This time, a judge did grant an emergency gun violence restraining order. A search warrant of the Clear Creek Place property revealed no other firearms. Now let's take a look at our regional weather. It looks like valley rain and mountain snow showers tonight and Tuesday, then mild and dry through Friday. The National Weather Service forecasts a chance of valley rain and mountain snow returning Saturday. For those in Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight, rain mainly after 2 a.m. with a low around 44. Tuesday, rain before 11 a.m. with a high near 56. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight, a chance of rain and snow after 2 a.m., increasing clouds with a low around 33. Tuesday, rain mainly before 11 a.m. with a high near 45. The National Weather Service has issued a special weather statement for the Truckee Tahoe region. Expect breezy wind with rain showers and mountain snow Tuesday morning. Wind-prone areas such as Washoe Valley and the eastern Sierra along Highway 395 could see gusts over 40 miles per hour. Choppy water is expected on Lake Tahoe and Pyramid Lake. Snowfall will be mainly along the Sierra Passes above 7,000 feet. Snowfall of 1 to 3 inches is possible, which could result in slick roads and temporary chain controls. And for Sacramento and Woodland, tonight, rain mainly after 11 p.m. with a low around 53. Gusts as high as 18 miles per hour. Tuesday, rain likely before 11 a.m. with a high near 69. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. Before there was California, this was the land of the Nisanon. Science correspondent Al Stoller speaks with Tannis Thorne and Hank Meals, authors of a new book, Nevada City Nisanon. The co-authors will host a presentation and book signing Wednesday at 7 p.m. at the Siemens Lodge in Pioneer Park. The gold rush hit native California fast, but not instantaneously. Tannis Thorne. Most people think the gold rush started in 1849, but it actually, gold was discovered in 1848. And that first summer, it was a local bonanza. The locals, the the rancho owners and the Indians themselves were the first ones to get to the gold, and it was very abundant. And Governor Mason at the time did a tour, and he said 50% of the miners were Indian in the summer of 1848. With this yellow stuff, you can get things you don't have. 
like white Muslim shirts, uh, molasses, raisins, tools with edges. You want these new things that are on the horizon, coffee, liquor, salt pork. I, I want some of this. The list goes on and on. It's, it's only human. The stereotype is Indians didn't know the value of gold, but I think this is a really big misconception. They figured it out over a period of months, and they talked among themselves, and they knew what it could buy. Not only did they know the value of it, they knew the landscape. They knew the country. This is a Stone Age people. They pay attention to these things. They can recall places where they saw puddles of gold nuggets. And that would have occurred with tertiary gravels. How long did that last? It lasted for quite a long time. You see the records of uh, Indians uh, all over the state continued to mine gold. It was a resource for them. There was a year, about a year, where they were doing quite well. And then you see Indians being barred from some of the diggings by 1852, 1853. Why was that? Competition. Then what happened? Then, since their subsistence base had been largely destroyed because the riparian areas were the areas where the gold was, and that was where large part of the food was, they were using the gold to purchase food for a couple years. And then when they no longer could get access to gold, they were, they were starving. There's a map of trails in the book, and it's fun to look at the trails and align them with today's roads. We today use I-80 to drive from here to there. Before I-80, there was I-40. Before that, there was the railroad. How was that route used before the railroad came in? Well, there was a lot of trade east-west with the Washoe, and the Washoe in turn traded with the Paiute to the east, and then People, say, around Colfax or Auburn traded with people in the valley who traded with people from the coast. There was a well-established network, and there's lots of archaeological evidence. Many of the trails that the Indians forged were then followed by the miners, especially through forested areas. That would have been very difficult to negotiate. The uh, ridge routes were, of course, very efficient ways of traveling. Highway 80 is a good example of that. What sort of estimates do we have of the population prior to the gold rush? Probably for the Nisan on, seven to 10,000 would be, a, I think, a modest number. The population was not sustained after the gold rush. No, most people agree that there is an 80-90% drop within years of the encounter. But we have to also remember that population was declining before the gold rush because of the introduction of epidemic diseases that no doubt came up from the valley and impacted the foothill people as well. It's an untold story. We don't know the powerful leaders that were here before, some of whom no doubt died. Their entire sagas that preceded us within, within the people, but they didn't just completely quit. They're resilient. Here's the key word here. They, they reformed. The Nisanans still show resilience today as they struggle to get the United States to recognize them as a California tribe. Tanis Thorne and Hank Meals are authors of a new book, Nevada City Nissinon.
Tennyson Hank will speak at a free book signing event at Siemens Lodge this Wednesday at 7 p.m. For KVMR, I'm Al Stoller. That's our newscast for this Monday, March 14th. KVMR gets support from Carmen's Garden and Greenhouse, locally owned since 2012 on Loma Rica Drive, Grass Valley. Stocking greenhouse coverings and components, down-to-earth amendments, IPM products, and more. Open Monday through Friday, 10 to 5. K-A-R-M-E-N-S, garden.com. And Tripp's Auto Body Shop, locally owned and operated by the Tripp family. Offering collision, dent, automotive frame repair, and detailing for over 65 years. Open weekdays 8 to 5, Freeman Lane, Grass Valley. TripsAutobody.com. Keep it tuned to your community radio station. At 6.30, we have Disability Wrap with co-hosts Carl Sigmund and Carly Pacheco. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Ed Yong stops by and shares his thoughts. Then at 7, we have Democracy Now! with host Amy Goodman. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza. Thanks for listening to the news this evening. I'm Kelly Reese, signing off.